0: Welcome back to the program. During the recent government shutdown, many commented that the radical elements of the Republican Party were acting like terrorists. In some ways, I suppose they were, even if we might have disagreed with their goals. The ideas of direct action, grassroots support, and commitment to the ideas of social change was very reminiscent to the minds of some to the efforts of many groups in the 1960s. Most Republicans didn't like the analogy. In fact, here was Sarah Palin on Fox News recently. If we were real domestic terrorists... Shoot, President Obama would be wanting to pal around with us, wouldn't he? I mean, he didn't have a problem uh, paling around with uh, Bill Ayers back in the day. Well, Bill Ayers, who became public enemy number one in the eyes of Republicans in 2008, is still deeply committed to his ideas about social change. The president doesn't pal around with him any more than he does with Ted Cruz. Bill Ayers has now written a second memoir, picking up where his last fugitive days left off. In addition to his commitment to social change, Bill Ayers has written numerous books on education, He is the founder of the Small Schools Workshop and was until recently Distinguished Professor of Education and Senior University Scholar at the University of Illinois, Chicago. It is my pleasure to welcome Bill Ayers back to this program to talk about his new memoir, Public Enemy, Confessions of an American Dissident. Bill Ayers, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Jeff. A pleasure to be with you.
0: Great to have you here. As you looked at the way the Republicans around the country behaved in the past month or so, did it remind you in some ways of of what the left did in the 60s?
1: Not really. I mean, I think that I think the parallels are <clears throat> there to be made, but I don't think they hold up very well. To me, what you're what you're witnessing in Washington is a debate that's pretty superficial in terms of what the real problems are going forward. In other words, they're talking about fiscal, you know, fiscal responsibility versus tax and spend. That's not really the debate. Everyone wants to tax and spend. The question is, tax whom, how much and spend on what? Um, I have a section in the book called mm-hmm. Talking to the Tea Party about some wonderful encounters I had because the Tea Party movement you know, is a place where a lot of grievances find a home. The problem is the, the leadership of the Tea Party, the defining elements of the Tea Party, really do veer towards jingoism or you know, America first-ism, and they and they veer towards a kind of backward um, uh, white supremacy. So those are places where I don't think there's any parallel at all.
0: When you saw the Occupy movement spring up a few years ago, did that give you hope, reason to think that some of those ideas of the 60s might find a resurgence within grassroots organizations?
1: You know, Occupy gave me great confidence and hope, and um, I you know, I think it was a marvelous success. I participated in it in Chicago and in several other cities. Um, you know, people kind of are too quick to say it, it was a failure. I mean... You know, the tactic of having a tense city in a downtown location isn't something you can sustain for very long. But in terms of changing the conversation, I think Occupy was remarkable. Nobody ever talked about the 1% and the 99% before. And Occupy was another place where every grievance could find a place, whether it was student loans, lack of health care, crummy wages, unemployment. Everyone found a place at Occupy.
0: You talk a little bit about how you responded to becoming such a public figure once again in the 2008 campaign. Talk a little bit about your perspective on it today, realizing that that so much of what was said came from people that have subsequently been so discredited.
1: Well, I mean, you know, I didn't take it all that seriously at the time, but it was quite a surreal experience to be kind of cast in the public uh, uh, headlight um, with that kind of label and that kind of identity. Um, it was c- uh, amazing to think that uh, I could have any impact at all on the outcome of a presidential election, and it turned out I didn't. Thank God. Um, <clears throat> you know, but the the opening of my book is really a scene in my living room with my graduate students. Somebody turned on the de- last debate between, or one of the last debates between Hillary Clinton and and Barack Obama when George Stephanopoulos asked about obama's relationship first with jeremiah Wright and then with me and my students were absolutely thunderstruck to see my name cast on the you know national news as some kind of something and one of my several fell to the floor gasping and one student turned to me and said that guy has the same name as you and another student said that's because he is the same guy but i mean my students had no idea that this was coming and and it was quite bizarre for all of us and and it was bizarre for me um, for those few months. But I chose to stay quiet to not participate in the debate about me <clears throat> or about Obama's relationships with, you know, these manufactured shady characters, and, um, and we got through it.
0: And, in fact, Obama was, what, eight years old at the time that, that you were active in, in what you were engaged in at the time? Well,
1: and President, candidate Obama said that several times, and the crazy thing was this narrative that we don't know anything about candidate Obama... But we do know he has these shady friends, a black nationalist preacher, a Palestinian scholar, a so-called domestic, unrepentant domestic terrorist. And, and since we don't know about Obama, let's look at his friends, and then let's, let's make the old traditional American argument of guilt by association. It didn't work for Hillary Clinton, and thank goodness it didn't work for McCain-Palin.
0: Talk a little bit about whether you considered using or taking advantage of the renewed notoriety that you had as a result of this to use it in some way for for good, in some ways for for the agendas and the things that you cared about.
1: Well, you know, it, it is true that I never really, really shut up. I didn't comment to the news media about the campaign or about my relationships, but but it is also true that I've been an activist since 19, the early 1960s and I've never stopped. And so the the, the commitments, the passions that ignited my concerns in the, in the 1960s are the same commitments and passions I have today. Racial justice, global justice or peace, economic and social justice and the link between democracy and education. These are the things I've worked on for years and they're things I'm still working on. I think things like notoriety and fame and celebrity, those things are passing. Those things are in some ways so superficial they're hard to comment on. But in terms of the hard work of organizing, the hard work of speaking up, the hard work of looking at the sites of power that we have access to, um, us ordinary people, neighborhood, street, community, workplace, classroom, this is where I've spent the last you know, 45, 50 years of my life and I still do.
0: But given the nature of our society today given the nature of communications today all the noise that is out there certainly while while fame and notoriety and all those things you're talking about are not and, and shouldn't be goals unto themselves are they not useful in terms of getting above the noise and above the clutter to get these important messages out there
1: well I think there are many ways to get messages out there and, and some of it is chance and it just comes to you but but I think the most important thing is that we not those of us who are uh, who consider ourselves um, social justice activists, peace activists, that we not get caught up in the game of saying, "Did I make it on the front page of the New York Times? Am I therefore valid and relevant?" We have real work to do on the ground, and here in Chicago, there are so many exciting things happen. They occasionally burst into the national agenda, like the very exciting pushback from the teachers union against the privatization. Of the Chicago Public Schools, that happened last year, and you may have noticed it mm-hmm. because it did make it to the national news. But long before it made it to the national news, there was real work going on day to day, grounded from the ground up, parent to parent, community person to community person, and that's where I think we should be spending our our time and and focusing our attention. And sure, occasionally it you know there's an occasional time when it it moves on to the national. I guess, media stage, and and that has some meaning. But I wouldn't stake our claim that that's how we get validated or that's how we gain traction. If there's nothing on the base, then there's really nothing.
0: Is it tougher, though, to get a message out using traditional grassroots methods within communities, within schools, within the workplace, in an age in which there is less and less local media and there is more of a sense of nationalization, globalization, of everything, including news and information?
1: Well, I think nationalization and globalization could be a very terrible thing and, and quite, a, quite, a, quite a useful thing. But when, again, thinking of my own work here in Chicago, the work last spring around the teachers, um, the pushback against the privatization and the corporate agenda for school reform, um, the push against NATO and for world peace, um, the push by the immigrant youth, uh, the Immigrant Youth Justice League at the University of Illinois Chicago, where I taught for many years, those kids coming together, finding each other, naming the obstacle to their own humanity, and coming up with the brilliant kind of campaign, undocumented but unafraid. That stuff bubbles from the ground up, and if it's not solid on the ground, all the kind of media attention you get is is not is not useful. So I I'm a huge believer in yes traditional means of Communicating with one another, but also you know the the new social media can be very, very helpful and useful, and young people use it easily and and, and brilliantly
0: so many of the issues that were brought up in two thousand and eight when your name surfaced are things that that were essentially fifty or sometimes even more than fifty years old, and yet those those things seem to reemerge periodically we're seeing it now, some of these same issues in the New York mayoral race, talk a little bit about why do you think these issues have such resonance?
1: Well, I think they have resonance. I think Vietnam in particular, but also you're right, the the, the New York race and the Sandinistas and so on. I think they have resonance for a couple of reasons. One is that I think the hard right uh, was very excited to try to make a link between what they consider the worst moment in American history, the so-called 60s, which I think incidentally is mainly myth and symbol, Um, because nobody lives by decades and I could say more, but enough said, Uh, but also because in this country we have not resolved in an honest way what happened in Vietnam and because Vietnam is an open wound, it means that we are constantly fighting the Vietnam War to this day and that's both astonishing because if you go to Vietnam you'll find very quickly that the American War there is ancient history but here it's living history and so we have the the insanity of a candidate in two thousand and eight running as a war hero from Vietnam, and anyone who lived through it, and most of us who are still kind of trying to trying to uh, get beyond it um, know that there were no war heroes in in Vietnam except for people like my brother who deserted the army and refused to go and fight and kill in vietnam those were those were the war heroes, so you have that narrative, then you have a narrative that 's very common sense that it was a quagmire that we accidentally slipped in, and it, you know, or, or that it was unwinnable. Those are not the problems of Vietnam. It wasn't a quagmire. We marched in there intentionally. It wasn't that it was unwinnable that made it immoral and illegal. It was immoral and illegal. So we haven't gotten over it in the sense that we haven't had a truth and reconciliation process throughout society. We haven't tried to tell the truth. And when I say truth, I don't mean that we will come to a consensus about this fact or that fact, But not even attempting to go down that voyage of seeking the truth means that we as a country have Vietnam as an open, bleeding wound.
0: What did Vietnam then represent as a kind of tipping point for the country in ways that make it, as you say, still an open wound?
1: Well, for one thing, it was uh, the first time that uh, the United States was openly defeated and for all to see a 10-year war Six thousand people a week were being murdered, and at the end, um, the United States fled from Saigon, uh, leaving you know many many people behind as they jumped on the helicopters from the American embassy. It was a total rout and a defeat. Recently, you might have read the um, obituary of General Giap, mm-hmm. the Vietnamese general, and in the New York Times front page obituary. He was over a hundred years old. But among the things that the obituary said, said some very honest things, but then it said he fought the United States to a stalemate. That's the narrative that is we still like to pretend is true. A stalemate? You mean running out of the country and giving up everything and leaving all the warplanes and everything at Tonson Air, Air Base? That was a, a stalemate? I don't think so. That was a defeat. And the United States has a hard time swallowing that. And now we're in war after war where we, the United States doesn't, work its will, um, you know, easily or, or simply, and in fact is being defeated again and again. This is the long-term, what I think is complicated and difficult for people to come to terms with, which is American military power is not the answer. American military power in the world is in many ways the problem.
0: As new generations emerge in, in leadership positions, generations that, that oftentimes know very little, if anything, about the Vietnam experience... What change? What difference do you think that will make?
1: Well, I think I think that you know, that to me, there's nothing more exciting right now in Chicago than young people um, pushing back against. Uh, it, it's not that they need. I mean, we are a, a country that has kind of a, a bad problem with amnesia. <laughs> I sometimes call it the United States of Amnesia. But but we so we don't learn the lessons of history. But I must say that young people today are more savvy. More engaged, more interested in the world than any generation before, and, and they have access to more you know to more media outlets to more sources of information and they use it. I see here in Chicago young people taking over the immigrant rights struggle, young people taking over the women 's struggle, young people giving energy to the struggle for public education. These are great developments, nothing to be um, you know, either overly critical of or shy about. I mean, it's a great thing.
0: What do they want to know about your students, for example, or young people in general that you come in contact with? What do they want to know about your experience and what what you went through?
1: You know, I, I find a great openness to, you know, among people to have a dialogue, cross-generational dialogue, um, dialogues across a lot of different divides. And, you know, I think... I, I often think, you know, I I, have a, I was a member of Students for Democratic Society. I was a, an officer of that organization, and I still have my membership card. And on the front of that card, it says, we are people of this generation, bred in at least modest comfort, looking uneasily at the world we inherit. That's how I feel now. That's how I've, I've felt for 50 years. And frankly, <clears throat> we all live in an intergenerational space. I don't feel that separated from... Since I spend most of my time with young people and you know middle-aged people and old people all together, I don't really feel a great separation. We're sharing the planet now. A hundred years from now, we'll all be dead. We might as well get busy getting to know one another, having the dialogues we need to have to push effectively for a better outcome, for social justice, for peace, and so on.
0: And what about the young people that think they can do it through traditional political means, by supporting traditional political actors. You've, you've been very critical of that over the years.
1: Well, I'm still critical of it, and, and or at least I want to issue a caveat. I'm not against people being involved in electoral politics, but I think people should understand when they enter electoral politics that they're entering a very corrupt machine, and therefore they should have goals, whether their, candidates win, whether their candidate wins, loses, or draws, their goal should be to build the movement out of that. My, If I look even glancingly at history, Lyndon Johnson passed the most far-reaching civil rights legislation since Reconstruction, but he wasn't part of the black freedom movement. FDR wasn't part of the labor movement. Lincoln never belonged to an abolitionist party. These three are remembered because of fire from below. And I think we spend too much time staring at the sites of power like the White House, like Congress, that we have very little access to, if any, and not enough time looking to the sites of power we have absolute access to the neighborhood, the street, the workplace, the community.
0: Do you think that you're seeing signs of that fire below starting to emerge? Do you think that it is possible in this day and age?
1: It's never gone away, and I see it everywhere, but I'll I'll give you a couple of examples from the first term of President Obama, the Obama administration. Who were the people who made progress? The people who made progress were the people who were stoking the fires from below. Queer people made progress. Um, Women made progress. Immigrant youth made progress. But they didn't do it by standing silently and wondering if the great man would give them what they needed. They did it by pushing hard and
0: not letting up. Bill Ayers, his new memoir is Public Enemy, Confessions of an American Dissident. Bill, I thank you so much for spending time with us today.
1: Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks a lot. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.